Lord Jesus, thank you. Fasten our attention on you, Lord. There's so much that can distract us, whether it's global events or quiet troubles in our own lives that no one else but you knows. Help us now to give our full attention to you that we may hear your voice. Do as you ask and be reassured in your love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles with me, I'd love to read the Bible with you before we look at the sermon in the Gospel of Luke. Open your Bibles in chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. This is not the pre-sermon, this is just a Bible reading. Not going to explain the text, I just want to read it as a quiet reminder of the kind of people we are to be. The context is simple. Paul finds himself in prison and the only church, he says in this letter, who has seen fit to partner with him by giving him financial support is this church in Philippi. They have sent someone to help Paul in prison. He has been refreshed. His life has been sustained by their generosity and in gratitude, he writes them this letter to thank them and also to remind them of their identity in Christ as they, along with him, suffer as Christians. Philippians chapter 2, Paul wrote to them and to us, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life 
so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Even if I am being to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is who we are. We are those who are grateful to be saved by Christ. We are amazed at his humility to die on the cross for us after becoming a man, living a life as we are, facing the temptations that we do. He died, and because of his death, he was exalted, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him. Our place now is to live in imitation of his humility. Look at verse 14, without grumbling or disputing, and that humble love, that humble insistence on seeking the good of others will make us shine as lights in the world. Lord Jesus, may we be these kinds of people. This is who you are. May we be known by our love, by our humility, by our chosen sacrifice to set aside rights and privileges for the good and the love of others. Lord, we are becoming that church. Make us much more so like that, especially in times like these. May they know us, Lord, as you have taught us. May they know us by the way we love you and we love others. I pray in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. amen. Luke chapter 19 is where we are walking with Jesus faithfully toward Jerusalem. One of the striking things in the life of Jesus in general, and it becomes much more striking as we approach these final chapters of Luke, is that Jesus is under immense pressure himself, but he continually puts the good of others ahead of his own. I've been a pastor for a long time now. The last several years, I've also been volunteering as a law enforcement chaplain, and because of those two vocations, I get called often to a scene where nobody wants to be. Crisis has brought people together. Tragedy has forced people to spend a few painful, painful, tear-soaked hours together. Nobody wants to be there. They call for a pastor or they may call for a law enforcement chaplain because they need some measure of support. They're offering, they're hoping that somebody can show up and offer a little bit of hope. And from that perspective, as sometimes the stranger in the room, in the middle of tragedy, it's always been very moving to me that even in those heartbreaking situations, there are almost always those who put the needs of others ahead of their own. Heartbroken spouses, heartbroken children who with all the pain in their heart still find love in themselves to give care and to give support to others even as they so desperately need it themselves. That's what's happening in Luke chapter 19. It's easy to miss, but it's right here in Luke chapter 19. If you just turn the page probably in your Bible, you'll discover that the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is in this same chapter. This is the end of Jesus' life. We are coming to the end. The net that his enemies have spread for him and the road that God has indicated for him is narrowing. 
and he is headed toward the cross. He is passing through Jericho, but he will not stay there, at least not for long, because his appointment is in Jerusalem. He's going to endure a mockery of a trial. He's going to endure blasphemies and lies heaped against him. Almost without exception, he won't say a word to defend himself because this is why he came. All of that has to be in Jesus' mind. This is the reality of what he is going through. Yes, he is God, but he is also a human being. That's the point of the gospel, that God became a man to take mankind's place, to suffer for us, to bear the penalty of our sins. So he's feeling this in his humanity. Sleep probably has become more difficult, certainly higher blood pressure and increased heart rate, the pressure that is always on him because of who he is now grows more and more intense as he approaches the cross. And yet in Luke chapter 19, I read the story of him fastening his attention on one man, loving him and accepting him and caring for him in a way that maybe nobody ever had and certainly no one had in years. Read with me in Luke 19 verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And Luke wants you to see that he's passing through because he's on his way to the cross. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Is that name familiar to anybody? Everybody laughs, both services. People laugh when they hear his name. Why, does pe why do people laugh when they hear the name Zacchaeus? He's a wee little man. What a thing to be known for. This old English, not particularly a compliment the way they sing it, right, with the hand motions. Did you do the hand motions? Zacchaeus gets, he gets a little bit of the short end of the story, too, because his stature, his physical size is quite literally the least of his problems. Watch. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, that's one of those quick sentences that you can read by and not make much of it, maybe be a, feel a little twinge of envy of Zacchaeus because he's rich and you're not. But for the people who read this the first time, there's a world of sin and betrayal and infamy in that single sentence. Zacchaeus is a tax collector and not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. See, here's how it works. The nation of Israel is occupied by the Roman Empire. Let's put it in our own terms. Imagine a superpower unknown to human history that rises in our day and becomes so financially and militarily superior to anything that the world has ever seen that it even subdues and destroys the United States. And it occupies us. There are garrisons in our cities. There are soldiers marching through our streets. Those soldiers even have the authority if they don't feel like carrying their burden somewhere, they can compel any one of us to carry it for them for a little while. That kind of strength, that kind of occupation. And what's worse, the way this enemy is financing their occupation of our country and building these forts, garrisons, and installations all across our country is with our own tax money. They take our taxation system, make it their own, and they make a deal with some of your neighbors. They say, look, we're here to stay whether you like it or not. You can play ball and be rich or you can fight us and die. We'll sell you a little tax collection franchise. 
You collect money for us. People hate you for it, but you can take more than the law requires. And whatever you take, yours to keep. And better than that, you work your way up the system, you can sit at the top of the pyramid, and you'll have a bunch of other tax collectors beneath you, and you'll get a cut all from them all the way up the pyramid. That's what Zacchaeus did. Someone on your block did that. What would your feelings be about him? You'd hate him. If you saw that the fire department was parked in front of his house with their lights on, you would probably wish he were dead. There would be that kind of hatred for someone who did something like that. That's Zacchaeus. Verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And I don't know why Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. Maybe as so many, he wanted something from him. More likely, since Luke doesn't mention anything about of his motive, maybe he's just struck by the celebrity of Jesus. This is a man, after all, who commands disease and nature. He can do anything he pleases. You would want to see a man like that, but Zacchaeus... And this is where people laugh at the man. He can't see Jesus because of the crowd, because he was small in stature. You understand what you're being told in the elegant language of the Bible? What's Zacchaeus' problem? He's short. And that wonderful song, Short People, has not been written yet. And nobody's going to give a man like this a break. If a man, this infamous, this hated, tries to get through a crowd depressed to the front where he could see, nobody's going to give him a break. Nobody's going to part. Uh, the crowd is not going to part in his past so that he can see. He's probably going to catch a few knees and elbows. If they can, they're going to trip him. If they have a chance, they'll step on him. They might stomp him to death. Zacchaeus really is in a bit of a pickle. He would very much like to see Jesus, but he can't see him from the back of the crowd. And if he gets in the crowd, it's probably not going to be a good afternoon. But you don't get to be a chief tax collector, I don't think, anywhere, and certainly not in Israel by being stupid. He has a plan. Look at verse 4. He ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And remember what I've been telling you, when the Bible gives you a detail, it's really trying to draw your attention to something. I, wouldn't, I don't know trees from anything, but I do happen to know what a sycamore is because where I grew up in Mexico, there are a bunch of them. A tree, a sycamore tree is one with a thick trunk and low lateral branches. In other words, it's perfect for a short guy to climb. Zacchaeus has run on ahead from the safety of the crowd, taking advantage of these low-hanging, thick branches. He tucks his robe into his belt and makes a rather undignified trip up the tree. And there he is. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. It's quite a story if you can see it in your mind's eye. 
The crowd is almost pushing Jesus along. We're not told about the size of the crowd, but by this point in Jesus' ministry, all the way through the Gospel of Luke, but especially now, large crowds accompany him. They are shouting and demanding and questioning. There is always pressure around Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. The crowd setting its own pace is probably almost pushing him down the road. And in the middle of it, Jesus stops. And there's a little bit of an absurd scene if you can picture it. The entire crowd has to stop because Jesus stopped and the crowd respectfully throws on the brakes. A little dust comes up in the air and Jesus is paying no attention to the crowd whatsoever. He's looking up into the tree to a short, wide-eyed man who can't believe he's getting this much attention. Zacchaeus is looking down at Jesus. The crowd is looking up at Zacchaeus, and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Again, this doesn't sound like much, but it's scandalous, which is why the crowd grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Why is this so important? Because then and now, sharing the table with someone is a sign that you not only love them, you actually like them. You ever been given the old I love you, I just don't like you treatment? Doesn't feel good, does it? In the ancient world and in the Middle East to this day, sharing the table with someone communicates something to them. If it's not one of these awkward social obligations that is imposed by family or imposed by work, if you're freely and willingly inviting someone into your home or accepting an invitation into theirs, what you're communicating is love. What you're communicating is acceptance. There's no one in the crowd who cares for this man. Everyone in this crowd likely wants him dead. But Jesus says, hurry up, get down out of there. I must stay at your house today. And that word must is big. The Greek commentators, this was written in Greek, not English. They talk a great deal about how emphatic this imperative word is. In other words, there's a sense of the divine here. It's not that just that I need a place to stay. It's not only that I want a free meal. It's important that I sit at your table. And the crowd gripes. But the journey and the meal go on. Look what happens. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, this is back at Zacchaeus' house. The grumbling crowd is probably not there because their decision to go into Zacchaeus' house would have communicated to Zacchaeus and to others what they don't want to be true. They want nothing to do with him. They want this man dead and gone. He is an outcast in a very special way. But Jesus is there. And perhaps at the conclusion of the meal, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, did you notice what he calls Jesus? Lord. You want to pay attention to the interplay of names. See, you know Zacchaeus' name because Luke told it to you back in verse 2. But did you notice when Jesus called Zacchaeus out of the tree, he called him by name? How did he know it? Zacchaeus didn't introduce himself. It could be that this man is so notorious that Jesus knows him on sight. 
I can't prove it one way or the other, but I don't think that's the case. I think this is one of those times that Jesus is using the very faculties and powers of God to speak to Zacchaeus by name and invite him into relationship, invite him actually into something that no one else did for him. Fellowship at the table, the hospitality of a home. The only people who came to Zacchaeus' house were men who had made the same decision he had. The only people who would be willing to be seen with a man like Zacchaeus were people with a conscience as hard as his own. Now Jesus wants to come and says, I must spend time with you, and he calls him by name. Why is that? Because that's just how good Jesus is. And look at Zacchaeus' response. He says, behold, Lord, something has happened here. Jesus knows the outcast by name. He knows the one who everybody hates. He knows him by name. He invites him to the table, and Zacchaeus responds by calling him what? Lord, you're in charge of me. Jesus has a name himself. Zacchaeus gives him an honorific title instead. He doesn't address him by his name. He tells him publicly, you're in charge of me now. And look at the decision he made because of what Jesus has done for him. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. That's huge. Let's just live with that for a second. Would you do that? Would you liquidate half of what you have and give it away to the needy? If you would, the poor would like a word with you. <laughs> they would like to be on your list. Lord, half of what I have is gone already, and he's not done. Look, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it. What? Fourfold. Lord, I'll have to look at the books. Half of everything I own, I'm giving to the poor. Then I'll go through my records because I've been doing this for a long time and I'm at the top of the pyramid and a lot of that money actually did belong to the Roman government, but I'll look carefully and whatever I've cheated people out of, I'll hunt them down and give them back their money for times over, more than the law of Moses required. He's being generous. He is choosing restitution. He is choosing generosity that is beyond what the law actually required. Now, we can't look at his books, but if he gave half of it away and then made restoration fourfold, how much money would this man have left? Probably not much, and certainly not as much as he once did. Listen to Jesus. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. What's that about? That's a little reminder in case the religious crowd actually has come in or are sneaking at the windows to find something else to gripe about. A son or a daughter of Abraham is someone who stood in the godly line of Israel. You see, if you read your Old Testament, God had made lavish promises to Abraham to raise up a nation and from that nation bring kings like David and from that line bring a savior. But in anyone's estimation, if anyone asked about Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus forfeited that long ago. 
And God doesn't owe him anything. God never did. If Zacchaeus was to have anything, it was only because a good and loving God promised it to him. But certainly, Zacchaeus' behavior now means that he's outside the camp, and nobody, not even God, especially God, will do anything for a man like that. And Jesus says something astonishing. Salvation has come to this house, the house that corruption built, the house that sin built, the house that theft built, this home that is seen and hated by so many now has a saved man living in it because he also is a son of Abraham. And here's the point of the story. The son of man, Jesus is referring to himself again using that messianic title. I'm the one that was promised. The son of man came to seek and to save who? The lost. Zacchaeus knew he was lost. That's why he stayed away from the crowd. That's why he climbed up in the tree. There's, all, there's three people in this story. There's Jesus, the crowd, and Zacchaeus. One of them can seek and save those who were lost, Jesus. Zacchaeus is that lost man who finds himself climbing down out of the tree in glad, joyful disbelief. He's speaking to me. He knows my name, and for the first time in years, he's using my name without an insult. He's saying that he has to come to my house. I can't believe it. What would he want? How embarrassing. What will I serve him? No, they enjoy a wonderful time together, and Zacchaeus, in response at finding himself so loved, calls Jesus his Lord, promises restoration, and not only restoration, but generosity. Jesus announces that he's saved and then tells us the point of the story. The whole reason Jesus has come to the world is to seek and to save those who were lost. The point of Luke 19, verses 1 through 10 is simply this, that Jesus will save anyone who confesses they are lost. But that last part is the hard part. It is buried in the human heart to deny that we are lost. That is our spiritual programming. Here's a simple way you can find out. And if you want a simple way to tell people about Jesus, try this. Just ask people if they think they're a good person. You know what you'll hear? Eh, pretty good. Kind of go like this. Because nobody wants to say they're great. That seems a bit too much, even if they think they are. So that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, compare. I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but... And Jesus says he's come to seek and to save who? Lost. See, if you're lost, you don't know where you are. If you're lost, you have no hope in yourself. Not struggling, not trying. Jesus says, I have come to seek. There's intensity there. And save, there's effort there, those who are lost. And it is exceedingly difficult for anyone in the world to turn themselves into God, to call Jesus Lord, to give up on the project of self-improvement and self-salvation and admit to Jesus that they're spiritually blind. Try it. If you get a chance this week, and it won't shock and offend people, careful because people kind of worked up this week, but just ask someone, when you think of yourself spiritually and your moral sensitivities, your moral compass, do you find that you're as blind as a bat, sir? 
No one will say that they're spiritually blind. No one will say that their heart is dark. No one will admit to being self-centered, but that's the world you live in. That's the heart you struggle with, and that's what you guard against in the relationships of almost every person you encounter. People are self-centered. They are self-determined. They refuse to admit that they're lost, and Jesus can and will save anyone who will confess it. In other words, agree with him that they are lost, but oh, is that a hard confession to make because we're determined to save ourselves. When I moved back to the United States in seventh grade with my parents, my parents took me to Amarillo, Texas from the wonderful city of Chihuahua, Mexico. There was a culture shock like no other. And one of the first places I felt it was sports. See, I played in Mexico whatever sport was in season, but until I got to America, I didn't realize that I wasn't playing it very well. I was shocked by how seriously Americans take sports. I was shocked to find out the kids who were no more athletic than I was had private coaches. And kids who couldn't walk a straight line down the hall at our school on the way to get to their books were working the, in the afternoons because this kid and his dad had a vision that he was the next great thing. And they were paying hard-earned money to get the best genetic potential and athletic performance out of a kid who couldn't shave yet. It was shocking. And the competitiveness of America speaks not only to our country, but it's something that's buried in every human heart. But nobody wants to lose. About 30 pounds ago, I have met that competitive spirit in a whole other way. I had a good friend in this church who sadly moved to Tennessee, and that's why you see me in the rotund shape that I enjoy now. He was a personal trainer. He had a wonderful little private gym up in Signal Hill, and he said, Bruce, I'm not going to let you look like this. You're going to go to my gym. I'm going to train you and whip you into shape. I'm not going to charge you. You're just going to show up and do everything I say. Fair enough. What do you say with a guy like that? So there I went. And it worked. He got me into great shape. And one of the reasons was it was a tough crowd. There were three kinds of people in that gym. There were well-to-do housewives, top-end athletes, and me. That was the constituency. Really nice ladies who wanted to work out. National champion, Division I athletes, guys trying to make it on the professional tennis circuit. And me, the pudgy pastor. One of the friends, and I cherish his friendship to this day, was actually one of the nation's best coaches. He'd been a college Hall of Fame athlete himself. He was now coaching national champions and in the master's division, still winning championships himself. And one of the ways that they keep your interest in a private gym is they make the clients compete against each other. Well, you can imagine how that went for me almost every morning, right? I mean, the housewives were smoking me, to say nothing of the, uh, of the athletes in the room. But I became friends with this coach, and on almost every drill, everything they had us do, there were a couple things that because of my greater weight, I could occasionally edge him at, but not many. Almost every time he beat me, which gave me this affectionate nickname. He called me number two. <laughs> Is that a compliment? Not in the world and not in America because he taught me something that coaches say. He said second place is the first. Isn't that amazing? 
I pulled that little colloquialism from sports out, not knowing who would be here in two different services. And as soon as I said second place is the first, both congregations said, loser. Here's the point. That kind of dogged determination to better yourself and to be the best that you can be can build a country, it can win a war. It certainly builds championship sports, but it'll send you to hell if you try to save yourself and win on your own spiritually. That's what Zacchaeus realized. Zacchaeus wasn't losing, he was lost. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost, not those who are merely struggling, not those who could still make it. And the spiritual project, the way many people understand it is, I'm not saying I'm doing very well, but I'm going to make a comeback. I'm going to read a book or go to church or say this prayer or do this thing, and then I'm coming back. And the only way anyone can ever have Jesus say to them, salvation has come to your life, salvation has come to your house, is because he knows your name and your lostness. He has come for you, and he will save you, but only if you confess that you're lost. So if there's anyone watching online on this strange, windy, rainy Sunday here in Huntington Beach, or there's anyone in this room who has never humbly told Jesus, yes, Jesus, I agree, I confess to you, I agree with you, I'm lost, please save me, he will, but not if you continue competing and trying to save yourself. Here's three simple truths for Christians, those who were already following Jesus to act on. Two simple truths. There are obstacles to trusting Jesus, but he is the seeker. If you know Jesus, it's because he sought you out. If you know Jesus and have the blessing of calling yourself his disciple, if you're a Christian, it's because he came and he sought you. He is that way, and we should be those who seek those around us who have are, who feel like the outsider, who feel that they are hated, who feel that God has no place and no hope for them. Secondly, real faith in Jesus always leads to real change in your life. You'll notice what a different man Zacchaeus is. He went from a crafty tax collector, enriched through shame and traitorous behavior, to welcoming Jesus into his home, calling him Lord and proving that he meant it by saying, I'm giving half of my belongings away and I will restore fourfold anyone I've ever, ever cheated. Those who really have placed their trust in Jesus always have a real change in their life and it shows up like this. It shows up in humility. Zacchaeus isn't pleading his own case. He's not promising to do better. He is using the word fraud in his own house because he's humble. And he's also practicing confession. You see, the biblical idea of confession, which is what Zacchaeus is doing in verse 8, is not mere admission. Please understand this little word study from the New Testament for you. In the New Greek New Testament, to confess something is to agree with God about it. It literally means in Greek to say the same thing. And it's easy to admit things. It's entirely different to confess things to someone that you've wronged. People can admit things, but they have their reasons. They say things like, I'm not saying I didn't do it, but you ever had that treatment? 
You ever notice that the word but, B-U-T, always erases everything that came before it? That's what somebody taught me. That word is an eraser to wipe out everything that the person said before it. Confession is not like that. Confession is agreement with God because Zacchaeus is turning himself in. And notice, the third thing that is always marks the life of a Christian is not humility, is not only humility because he couldn't save himself, it's not only confession because the only way he was saved is because he agreed with God in the first place. There's also generosity here. Zacchaeus has gone beyond the law. He is actually doing more than the law required. There was no portion of the law of Moses that required him to give away half of his goods. The restoration and restitution that the law required is lower than fourfold. Why is Zacchaeus like this? Because people who find themselves loved in such a generous way by such a generous God are always generous themselves if they've really been touched by the generosity of Jesus. A stingy Christian, stingy with money, stingy with time, stingy with his attitude, stingy with his talent should be a contradiction in terms Zacchaeus is an an entirely different kind of person once Jesus comes into his life and Zacchaeus realizes that the terrible bargain he made with the devil to enrich himself and to put himself outside of the care of his community was a terrible and fatal mistake. Zacchaeus likely agreed with everyone in town that there was no more hope for a man like him, but then Jesus literally stopped a crowd to call him by name by tell him, and telling him that he would be welcomed into fellowship with Jesus, and Zacchaeus responded by calling him Lord. For those of you who are Christians in this service, if you want to make an impact for Jesus, you want to make a difference in the world that we're suddenly find ourselves in in this chaotic, difficult, painful year, go out there with the humility of a man who confesses his sins in his house in front of his entire community. Agree with God about your faults and your sins and your inability to save yourself. Live daily in the gratitude that he saved the likes of you and be as generous with your time and your money and your kindness and your listening and your love as you dare because Jesus was so generous with you. If Jesus could raise up again in the United States a band of disciples who were humbled by his love that he saved them this way, that were quick to admit their faults and sins to God, to each other, and to anyone they offended, whether they were a Christian or not, and were as generous as Jesus himself is, because remember, he's passing through Jericho on his way to the cross. If we could show the gospel of Jesus by living the way the Savior lives here in Luke 19, what a message that would be to a world that figures we have lost credibility that doesn't believe in the Savior because they so seldom see examples from people who claim to know him. There's good news here, friends. The good news is that judgment is coming, but Jesus has stepped in to absorb it himself, and he really will save anyone who confesses they are lost. Let's pray together, shall we? On this day, there may be more people watching online than in the room. 
wherever you are, whether you're seated here or you're online, can I just ask you, are you quite certain that you know this Savior? Have you called Jesus Lord or are you banking on a religious experience you once had? Are you remembering a prayer maybe in childhood that you prayed sincerely, but frankly, you haven't seen much change in your life? If that's all you're clinging to, let me invite you to go deeper with God and agree with God that you're lost. Agree with God about your need and call Jesus Lord by turning away from your sin and asking him to save you. If you haven't done that, I'd love to invite you to do that this morning. I wonder if there's anyone here who says, Bruce, I just want to be sure. I'm talking about here in the room. I can't see the online audience. But you hear this story, you search your own heart, you realize how competitive, self-willed, self-determined you are spiritually. And you just say, I, I need to be sure. I'm not entirely 100% certain that Jesus has saved me, but I'd like to. I'd like to be sure. I'd like to ask him for sure. If I'm not sure before, I'd like to be sure now that I agree with Jesus that I'm lost and I want him to save me this morning. Anyone like that this morning? Could I just ask you to raise your hand if that's your situation? God bless you. Thank you. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. What a privilege. What a savior. And if you know him, Christian, go out there and show it. Go out there and live it. Imitate the humility of your Savior who welcomed the cross. Agree with the one who knows everything, who calls strangers, stops crowds and talks to strangers because he knows the needs and the names of everyone. And be generous. It's one of the greatest casualties of 2020. Because of the pain, because of the pressure, because of the disagreements, people have clutched very tightly their own things held on to their own, protected as much as they can of their own. Jesus never did. We read it in Philippians. We see it in this story in the Gospel of Luke. He's determined to lay his life down. If you'll imitate his generosity, it'll change your family. It'll change your marriage. It'll be a bright light in this dark world. If you're trusting Christ this morning, online or in person, I'd love for you to fill out a card and let us know that you've done that you're here in person, send us an email or send us a text message, please, with his name to that number on your screen. We'd like to celebrate with you. We'd like to pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us, for loving me this way. Lord, I don't deserve it. You're so good. Even on your way to the cross, you were stopping to talk to sinners, to turn them into saints turn them into the saved. Thank you. Thank you for loving us this way. Let us imitate, Lord, your love and kindness that others may take their view past us and see you this week. I pray this in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. God bless you, folks. Listen, here's how it's going to work. We're only indoors because, well, you may have noticed there's a little bit of weather out there. It's hard to preach when the canopy is blowing away and blowing sideways into your neighbor's head. Hard for a pastor to pay attention when, parades, uh, when the tents are parading down the street at 25, 30 miles an hour.
But I've already looked at the forecast because I pay attention to the weather like a sea captain now. We have a beautiful forecast for next Sunday in the 70s. So God willing, we'll be right back out there. Just watch your email. If you don't subscribe to my email, please do. I'll keep you posted week by week. In fact, I'll send you an email this afternoon with some Bible reading if you'll subscribe before you go home. And we will just continue on mission because everything in this world is changing. But your Father's faithful, merciful, forgiving love never does. So go out there and show them. God bless you. Love you.